0: We are in First Samuel chapter Seven, and last time we had seen how Samuel had had gotten um, had been attacked the the Israelites had been attacked while Samuel was offering up the offering, and they were able to defeat the philistines, and that was going to now bring thirty years of peace, peace both from the East and from the West, and as it says in in verse fourteen, the end of verse fourteen, so there was peace between Israel and the Amorites uh, let, let me Let me read all of verse fourteen: The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron, even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the land of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So you had Philistines on the east, Amorites on the west. There was peace during a 30-year period. It had ended 40 years of Philistine rule. Uh, and and uh, so now Samuel is going to start now 30 years of judging of Israel, his formal judgeship. Is beginning in in this period. So let's pick it up from verse 15. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he used to go annually on circuit. To Bethel. And Gilgal. And Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then Then his return was to Ramah. For his house was there. And there he judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord. So it says in verse 15, now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Now this word all in our Western English understanding generally means absolutely everything. But very often in the scriptures, all is idiomatic, meaning for, for a majority, a lot, a long period. That he judged Israel all the days of his life. Well, certainly we know he wasn't judged when he was a little boy. We know that. And we know that, you know, at some point he must have been, you know, taken a Sabbath rest. And, and there were things that went on. And it's important to remember this because you're going to come across portions where the Old Testament speaks of all. And if you take it as a literal all, it's very hard to fit into the context of things. But I've, I've seen people try to do it, and then you get, you get all contorted trying to, to uh, uh, do this sort of thing. In verse 16, it says he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then his, his return was to Ramah. So Ramah was where he was born. Ramah was where his parents had lived. Remember, they had brought him from Ramah to Shiloh. And now he had returned back to his home, and so he would judge Israel. What is a judge? A judge was one who not only, in his case, he was a judge and a prophet, but a judge would give instruction on what to do, and cases would be brought before him, and people would look to him for counsel. But it was different than a kingship. A kingship was having rule over, and also extracting taxes, Building armies and all these sort of things that the judge didn't do. Judge often could call and gather people together, but it was different than, than a reigning king. And he would go annually on circuits. So he would go from the cities of Beth, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and then also Ramah. And so he would, he would move around between these, these four cities annually on a circuit in order to judge Israel, So that it would make it easier for the people. And in Ramah, he built there an altar to the Lord. And remember, altars were allowed, if it was going to be offered up by a priest, which, which uh, um, uh, Samuel was, certainly of the priestly class, and we covered that before, and, and, and of the tribe of Levi. And they were allowed to build al- altars until the establishment of the, the temple that was to take place, wasn't going to take place until under Solomon. So, remember, there was Saul, then David, then Solomon. It wasn't until that time that they couldn't build other altars. And this altar was to the Lord. Now, let's pick it up. Well, some people have said that because he was on this annual circuit all the time, that he didn't spend enough time with his sons and this is why they didn't turn out very well. well. We don't know that that's actually true. That's an interesting philosophy. That's an interesting hypothesis. But we don't know it to be true. That that's why his sons sort of went astray. We don't know that that's the case. But we do know that he was somewhat of a, of a busy guy. Now in verse 17 it says, then his return was to Ramah. Now in Ramah he actually started... A a Bible school. He actually started the seminary in Ramah. And and, uh, it's later referred to as... The group of students that were there were referred to as sons of the prophets. Sons of the prophets. And he started working with them. And this is the first indication that we have of a prophet, Samuel, raising up other prophets and teaching them how to work within this gift of prophecy. This man was a very industrious man. And so, if you look, for example, in in 1 Samuel chapter 19, you see a reference to this, this school that he had built. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 19. 1 Samuel 19, verse 19. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So here is Samuel standing and presiding over other prophets. A company of prophets. So he's working with them. Here is a man who, in addition to judging Israel, in addition to serving Israel, as their priest, is also formed a school to teach young people, younger people, how to be prophets, and this school continued because we see references to it in Second Kings in the life uh, in the lifetime of both Elijah and Elisha. There are several references, and and I'll just name those off: Second Kings two three, Second Kings four thirty eight, and Second Kings six one are again. References to these sons of the prophets, these groups of men that would gather together and usually they were under some higher prophet's uh, um, uh, uh, um, instruction and it was, in one case, it was Elijah and then after following Elijah, it was Elisha, were men who had a particular anointing and they were teaching other people. But you can see how industrious this guy was and how much Samuel accomplished in his lifetime as a judge. Now, remember, a judge is different than a king in that he doesn't have a huge infrastructure of governors and mayors and groups of people that work at his bidding. It is much, much less of uh, of a prescribed set of this person rules and then this group under him, this group under him, this group under him. It is... Very much independent and people coming for advice and then he being the final advice of authority. But in the midst of this, look what he set up. He sets up this school where people are being instructed. And this seminary, this school, this Bible college lasts for many, many generations after him. And I think that, that, that an important point here is that how industrious this guy was. And, and how one can take a life and do some, so much more than another. Let me give you an example. A lot of times people will you know, see me in my office or something and see what I'm doing and they'll say, Well, how do you do all that you do? You know, you do this and you teach this group and you teach that and you go in here and going there and serving on this. And if I think about it, I don't know. I really don't know how I do these things. But I will tell you what the Word of God teaches us. It teaches us that there are ways in which we can get a lot done in life. Let me let me show you um, in in uh, Psalm one. In Psalm one, it makes it clear and it gives us some direction. And you will see this in the lives of people. Let me give you an example. I know a man who who is uh, a head of a department. At, head of a department in in, uh, the medical center, head of one of the departments there. And so he has the educational instruction part, but he also has the clinical practice. So he has his own clinical practice. He has responsibility for an entire department. So that's with many doctors and surgeons and professors under him. And in, in addition to this, this guy has started a ministry in the Middle East. So he started the ministry where he's raised up over 100 physicians to go and to minister their talent, their minister in, in medicine to people in the different communities. And this is not easy to do. You know, you could go to a church like this, like we're in, and you could ask doctors to serve in some capacity, and you get a bunch of physicians come forward and serve. That is not the case in many countries. What we see here is not the case in many countries. And very often, when you go to the third world, you say, how come you know, there's not lots of people serving from the third world themselves? And very often, people get in a habit of receiving, and you don't see a lot of giving because they get in this habit of receiving. Well, he went to the to, to the Middle East and he tried to get doctors raised up, and they said, oh no, no, we don't do that type of thing. Americans are doing that pretty well. They don't need our help. So Americans would fly over to Jordan and Syria and serve as physicians, but the local physicians didn't want to do this. So he was able to work with them and raise them up and has over 100 of them now serving. This is a huge deal. Now, in addition to this, the guy wants to start a ministry in the medical center for the medical students. And so I was telling my friend about this guy, and, and so my friend met this person. And this, my friend turned to me and says, how does this man do all that he does? And I said, he loves the Lord. When you love God and you're willing to be industrious, you can get so much done beyond your line of work. A typical thing that I will hear from students is, I have no time for any of this. I'm too busy studying. You have no time for anything else? No. I'm too busy studying. And these are believers. And I'm thinking, you will never accomplish much in your life. This is what I'm thinking. I don't often express it. But this is immediately what I think. You will never accomplish much in your life. If all you can do is devote 100% of your time to your schoolwork, which I don't believe, and to ministering to yourself and your own desires, which is a large part of where their time goes, you will not accomplish a whole lot in your life. But if you're willing to work very hard in your work and also serve God in some capacity, He will use you so much more in your work and in the kingdom of God. This is what I see in the lives of some believers. You know, you you have this, this man in our church, for example, Dr. Spann in our church. He is dean of Baylor Medical School. And the guy leads a few mission trips a year with medical students overseas. Well, he was a missionary kid growing up. And so he has this heart for missions. And he'd say, well, you know, and, and, and Dr. Spann also has his own clinical practice. You know, when people come to me and they want the best physician, they say, look, we really need the best physician. I send them to Dr. Spann. And they've always been happy. Always been happy with this guy. So he's really good, really well respected in his clinical practice. He's dean of Baylor Medical School, and he leads missions several times a year overseas. How does he do all of this? It's because of the love of God. Don't you see that when you're willing to give of yourself, you will prosper beyond where the typical person prospers. Look in Psalm 1. Verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Okay, so the presupposition here is that he will be meditating in the law of the Lord day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law he meditates day and night. Now, in verse 1, it says he's not walking in the counsel of the wicked, nor standing in the path of sinners. So, in other words, this is a focused man. He doesn't have time to be doing so many other things. His mind is focused. And now, he delights in the Word of God. If you make this Word of God your meditation, you will do great exploit in your life. That I am sure of. You will accomplish so much. Now, making this Word of God as meditation in verse 3, it says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, it says in verse 4. So, in other words... If you make this Word of God your meditation, you rise up in the morning, make this Word of God your meditation, you will get so much more done in life. So much more done. And believe me, busyness doesn't stop the day you graduate. It really doesn't stop there. I realize that students are busy, but some other people are busy too. You talk to some young lawyers, see how many hours they work. Or talk to some young people that have gotten their MBAs or are in investment banking what they put those young people through and the number of hours that those folks work. If you will start your day with the Word of God, make this Word your meditation, you will accomplish so much more in life. Turn to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. You've got this guy Daniel. At this time in his life, Daniel is probably like 90 years old. In Daniel chapter 12. And this guy has accomplished so much. He's been in the... You know, he was taken as a slave by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And then he served under Nebuchadnezzar. He served under Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Then he served under Darius and Cyrus in Persia. This guy has served under at least five kings. And look what it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. This is what the angel said to Daniel. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you lead others to righteousness, you will shine like the stars forever and ever. That's what the Scriptures say. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the expanse of heaven. Those who lead many to righteousness, if you devote a part of your life, to leading others to righteousness in the areas in which you're gifted. It may be with little children. It may be with youth. It may be with something. If you don't know what it is, it's because you haven't tried anything. You need to try some things and see where your gifts come out. And usually your area of giftedness would be in an area that you really like. So some people are really good at just helping other people. They love to do things for other people. This is a gift. It's called the gift of helps. And they serve in that capacity and they really enjoy it. They really enjoy serving in that capacity. Some people are really gifted disciplers. They love sitting one-on-one with a person and teaching them the Word of God and seeing them come up and be instructed in the Word of God. Some other people love teaching and they're gifted at it. If you're gifted at it, other people will know it and you will feel very comfortable in it. And you know these things by trying it. And that doesn't mean that it's always easy. But it means that you'll be gifted at it. People will say, wow, I was really blessed by that. It really made a difference. You learn to give that capacity. You will get so much more done in your careers and outside of the exact thing that you do in your careers. You will touch many other people. This guy Samuel was very industrious. In spite of all that he had to do, he was able to start a school for the prophets, a Bible college. He would stand there and preside over them. You'd think that, you know, maybe doesn't the guy want, you know, some time off on his day off from judging? It's not easy being the judge of an entire nation, to be the judge. I mean, he has got to be pretty busy. But for him, it was important to be instructing other young people in the ways of how a prophet functions, because there are prescribed things that they should do, things that they shouldn't do. Okay, so let's turn back to 1 Samuel. If you learn to give something, you will see many others blessed through your lives. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 8, reading from verse 1. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiha. They, they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king, for a, judge for us to, a, a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing also to you. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Okay, so they, so the first thing it says is that Samuel had appointed his sons in Beersheba. That's the southern part of Israel. So Israel is very thin but it's long. And, and uh, you know, long in a relative sense. I mean, compared to Texas, it's not long. But it's, it's much thinner than it is in, 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 in length. And so in the south, Beersheba, it's hard to get, to get to. And you could go, you could go to the Negev today and Beersheba University is there. And they were judging in the south. So that, that made it a bit easier for Samuel. He'd appointed his two sons. Now, appointing sons is not always the best thing. It doesn't say that God told him to appoint his sons. He appointed his sons. But the man is old. He's in his 80s by this time. And he needs some help. So he appoints his sons. Sometimes children can you know, be the downfall of a business. And it happens all the time. A person will start a business and then they'll appoint his sons or his children to take over that business. And the business crashes and burns within a few years. And uh, uh, they're not always the right people for it. Sometimes you'll see pastors will appoint their sons to take over churches. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's not good. One needs to hear from the Lord. And sometimes the sons do better than the pastor himself. You know, and, and this, is, this has been seen on several occasions. And there are, there are uh, very famous preachers that, that were the sons of, of, of famous preachers. For example, Joel Osteen, his father... Uh, uh, had a large church Lakewood Church but when Joel took over I mean it didn't look like he was going to be able to do much with this but boy that thing just exploded he has been tremendous just tremendous how effective he has been and that's something that's really worked out well Uh, Andy Stanley his father is a a pastor of a a large church in in Atlanta and Andy Stanley has a large church I don't think it's, it's appointed of the same church but he learned this talent from his father so it can certainly work out well, and sometimes it doesn't work as well. In this case, what we see here is the sons were given godly names. So this name Joel, for the oldest one, means Jehovah is God. Abiha means Jehovah is my father. So they were given godly names. But they made their own choices. It says the sons took bribes. And there was precise commands against that in the law of Moses, which... They are supposed to know. So in Exodus 23.8, it says, You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. So it says, if you take a bribe, it's going to blind, the. it blinds the clear-sighted. So you could be clear-sighted, but if you've taken a bribe, it will blind you. And you can't stop after one bribe. This is what I tell students, you know, that um, once in a while you hear of, of people cheating in science. You know, they'll, they'll report some false result. Some student wants to get their PhD, they report a false result. And, you know, the professor can't check every result. And they publish the paper and then they report, and then they get, you know, gets better and better and all these things start happening. But what happens is a student lies a little bit and, you know, maybe changes a yield, doubles a yield or something. And then a little bit more and a little bit more and all of a sudden they can't stop. And so they start making very bold claims, they publish it, and now there's such bold claims, people start checking it, because they're amazed with this, and then they get caught. And the student ends up bringing down many people around them, including the poor professor that, you know, just published the paper along with them, but can't obviously be in the lab and check everything. But what happens is, it starts with a little thing, and it moves up and up and up. Why? Because the heart is deceitful. This is the way it works. Bribes do this type of thing. His sons took bribes. Children have their own way. In the sense that children grow up, they can make their own decisions. They can choose to follow their father's footsteps or not choose. His children didn't choose to follow in his footsteps. And so the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Aramah in verse 4. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. So here they're crying out for a king. They don't want his sons anymore. They want a king. Now God had intended all the time for them to have a king because God spoke of it. But it was the wrong time, number one. And the other thing that they were doing is they were depending on a king to deliver them rather than God Himself. So it was the wrong timing And it was dependency on a king rather than on God himself. Let me give you another example of where this catches a lot of American people. Not in desiring a king, but in desiring a spouse. Wrong timing and dependency on that individual. Sometimes it's wrong timing. That it's just not the right time. It's not the right time. It is too early. This person hasn't been tested yet. Give it some time. The other thing is dependency. Very often you will see a woman become dependent on young men. If I just have him, I will be okay. Well, that him is not God in their lives. And what happens is they end up getting married and this woman sees that this person can't meet all their needs. And this person who this woman is looking to, this young man that the woman is looking to, realizes they can't meet all the needs of this person. They can't keep them encouraged and happy all the time and they start getting angry because it's a wrong sort of of direction. Our dependency for our sufficiency is on God, not on another individual. Sometimes men will look at a young woman and think, if I just have that young woman, my life would be fine. No, that's not true. Your life will only be fine as you're reliant upon God. So this same sort of thing is what they wanted. But look in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17. We've seen this before, but it is a tremendous passage. This is what God had prescribed in the law concerning the king. It was to be done in God's time, but look at the requirements upon a king. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, start reading from verse 14. When you enter the land... The Lord, the Lord your God gives you, Deuteronomy 17:14. the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it, and live in it. And you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, Shall you shall set... As king over yourselves, you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord your God has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Look at this. I mean, look at the list of what God prescribes. First of all, it has to be one whom God Himself chooses. It has to be one who does not build up a mass for Himself great riches. He, it says that He shouldn't multiply for Himself wives. I mean, this happened with every one of those kings. But He shouldn't multiply wives for Himself. For Himself shouldn't do that. Or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. This is what kings do. They amass silver and gold for themselves. This is also what many politicians do. When power is gotten, they want to accrue riches to go with it. And God warned against that. Now, this is what God says they should be doing. In verse 18, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. This is beautiful. This is not just a good prescription for kings. This is good prescription for husbands. This is good prescription for wives, for pastors, for managers. It says that he's to have a copy of this law. Have a copy of this law and make sure it's accurately written. He's to write it out because remember they didn't have printing presses, and he was to write it out himself and the Levitical priests were to watch him to make sure that he didn't misspell anything or leave any word out or leave the word not out of the sentence something like that that he was to make sure it was an accurate copy and it says and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life I mean, this man is to have this with him his entire life. This book, with him. You'd think that, you know, the law was only, you know, these five books. You know, you read it once, you're good to go, right? It's like reading any document. You read it and you're, you're ready. Ready for life. Right? Wrong. God speaks differently through this book. This is a different book. He says, It shall be with him. Uh, in verse 19, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So you learn to fear God. Fearing God is not something that you're just born with. You learn to fear God. By reading this book, you learn to say, uh-oh, I can't do that. I have to be different. My life has to be different. I don't measure up. You learn to fear God by reading this book. By reading this book, you will learn to fear God. And when you do that, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, you learn to fear God by observing this word. If you observe this word, it will strengthen your fear of God. And this is a good thing. Well, what does it make you do in verse 20? That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. If you meditate on this book, it keeps you from foolish pride. God has a way of catching us. Pride goes before a fall, the scriptures say. God resists the proud, the scriptures say. But he gives grace to the humble. If you take this book, it will keep you in your rightful place. And can you imagine? Look at yourself. Just look at yourself. Have you ever been in a position where you've gotten a little bit of authority? Where you've been put in charge of something? Or you're no longer freshman, now you're sophomore. And the poor freshmen come in. And how an attitude can change now. Because now you're sophomore and you're not freshman anymore. Magnify this by a thousand times. Imagine you become mayor or a governor or a member of Congress or a president. Imagine what can happen to a heart. Imagine what you can start thinking of yourself when everybody says to you, Good morning, ambassador. Good morning, governor. How easy it would be to start Thinking something of yourself. And this book knows that. And it says for the king in particular, for those in leadership in particular, you need to meditate on this book so that your heart does not become lifted up above your countrymen. Because our hearts are insidious, it tells us this. And it instructs this to us. That he may not turn aside from this commandment to the right or to the left. You move from this and you will be hurt. You move from the guidance in this book and you will be hurt. So that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. If you take this book and make it your meditation, it will keep you from lifting up your hearts. And as you become promoted, and you will be, you'll get your degrees and you'll get your advanced degrees and you'll move up in management and in places and in companies. And only God knows what those are going to be. But as you get in those positions, there is all the more chance. Let me tell you, young men, one of the things that will happen. Women will start looking at you differently in ways that you don't deserve to be looked at just because you know, your head honcho of this division. And secretaries will start looking up to you like you're something really special. And you'll start feeling something about yourself, like, hey, I must be kind of special because she's looking up to me in this way. But you're really not special. Your heart is not to be lifted up above your countrymen, and many men will take take advantage of the women under them Because of these positions that they have. Because our hearts are wicked. The Bible says that the heart of man is more deceitful than all else. Who can understand it? I mean, that's a pretty good synopsis of the heart of man. It's more wicked than all else. Who can understand it? We ourselves do not understand it. But this book will cause you to understand your own heart and build in you the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of the Word of God. Father, I pray that You would give us a love and desire for this book so it would be with us all the days of our life and that we would read it So that we would not turn aside. That our hearts would not be lifted up above those of our countrymen. Father, I pray for these young men and these young women. That you would cause them to love this Word of God. That they would learn to fear God by keeping these commandments and these statutes. That they would learn to fear God. Father, give them a heart and a desire for this book above all books. And Lord, I pray for the young people here that their lives would be very industrious. That they would accomplish so much for the kingdom of God. Whether that be raising children and devoting their times into that. Whether that be building companies. But Father, that they would also set aside portions of time for serving you. And accomplishing great things for the kingdom of God that lead many to righteousness so that they themselves would shine like the stars of the heaven. Father, I pray that they would devote themselves to service of You. And Lord, I thank You in the name of Jesus. Amen.